On January 3rd, 2005, the body of 16-year-old Brittany Elbinger was found on the side of the road in Williamsburg, Virginia. Evidence was gathered immediately, and within weeks, police had closed in on their suspect, arresting 33-year-old Oswaldo Martinez, whose DNA categorically tied him to the scene. However, it's been 16 years since Brittany's murder, and Martinez still has not faced a jury. In all this time, justice for Brittany has been stuck in a legal limbo. As it turns out, Martinez is deaf and nonverbal, with essentially no communication skills. He has been found incompetent to stand trial, not because of a mental disorder, but because of a physical inability to communicate, and thus has been termed linguistically incompetent. Let's break down the details. Secrets of the Trees presents The Unresolved Murder of Brittany L. Banger. Brittany was described as a pretty girl who was kind but had been hardened by life. She was a high school dropout who was estranged from both of her divorced parents. She had been taken in by a pair of sisters, Danielle Hollingsworth and Kristen Thurston, and their mother in their mobile home in Windy Hill. Her friends stated that all she wanted in life was a stable home and a steady job. That evening on January 2nd, Brittany grabbed a Crown Royal bag which she used as her purse and notified the sisters she was going out to visit a friend in his trailer. She never made it. As it turns out, the friend she was going to visit didn't even know she was heading over and the sisters weren't expecting her back until morning so no one noticed her absence. Brittany's body was found in what police call a crucifix position, on her back, legs together, with her arms outstretched. Her jeans had been found pulled down. An autopsy confirmed she had been raped and semen was found inside her body. She had been strangled, likely from behind, with an arm while the assailant's other hand covered her nose and mouth, suffocating her. Police found DNA under her left hand's fingernails, indicating that she had scratched whoever had attacked her. Her Crown Royal bag and its contents were spilled along the sidewalk, leading police to believe that the assailant had rummaged through the purse and then tossed whatever he didn't want. Detectives gathered all the contents of her purse and trash that had been scattered nearby as evidence. They also collected a full bottle of Minute Maid Strawberry Passion Juice that had been carefully placed upright 12 feet from Brittany's lifeless body. The DNA found on this bottle matched the DNA collected from Brittany. Police brought in a tracking dog called Patton to follow the killer's scent. Patton first led police to a nearby convenience store, which provided investigators with a security tape, and then went on to lead them inside a local bar known as YB's Tavern to a precise booth. When questioned about the booth, the bartender revealed that he only knew of a Mexican who would frequently sit there. Police were also able to locate the man this bartender spoke of and took a picture of him, adding him to the suspect list. That man was Oswaldo Martinez. The surveillance footage from the convenience store that had been provided to police was originally encoded and therefore investigators were not able to view it as soon as they had received it. However, a few weeks into the investigation, they were finally able to access the footage and it showed Martinez purchasing a bottle of Minute Maid strawberry passion juice, the same kind of juice found by Brittany's body. Police then went and pulled the photo they had taken of Martinez just two days after the attack and realized that he had a long scratch on the left side of his face. Now, if you recall, Brittany was found with DNA under her left fingernails. Investigators also knew that Martinez frequently went to YB's, so they enlisted plainclothes officers to head over, wait for Martinez to have a drink, and then take the empty bottle when he left. Once they secured the empty bottle, DNA was taken from it and sent out to the lab. The results revealed his DNA matched the DNA that had been found on Brittany's body. At this point, police thought they had a slam dunk case. There was surveillance showing Martinez purchasing the same bottle of juice that was found near her body, 
they had his DNA, which matched the DNA that was on Britney's body. The scratch on the left side of his face, matching the theory that Brittany would have reached over and scratched the assailant with her left hand. Patton, the tracking dog, had even led investigators directly to the booth where Martinez had sat and even the same refrigerator door he had touched when he was looking for the juice. The evidence had been described as overwhelming. Now, as I had previously stated, Martinez is deaf and nonverbal with no communication skills. He can't read or write either. Because he's never been able to understand the charges against him and assist in his own defense, he has never faced a jury, but has also not been released. He has just been held at state hospitals receiving educational treatment since 2005. Now, it's human nature to form opinions, and I'm sure by now you formed yours as well. You might feel vitriol for Martinez, you might pity him. If Martinez truly has no idea of right and wrong, then how can he understand the magnitude of the rape and murder he committed and understand that there are consequences to such actions? How can we put him in prison with people who knew that rape and murder was wrong and still chose to commit such actions, while Martinez may have not been aware that this was wrong? Well, could Martinez actually be feigning ignorance? Oswaldo Martinez may have been referred to as a Mexican, but he's a Salvadorian immigrant who had been in the country illegally for about a year at the time of the investigation. Apparently, two of his brothers were already residing in the U.S. with valid work permits. One of his brothers, Mario Martinez, was furious when Oswaldo showed up unannounced looking for a place to stay. The Washington Post article I read stated that Mario was upset with Oswaldo's uncouth living habits, and shortly after his arrival, kicked him out of his mobile home and put him to live in a side yard shed with a mattress, power cord, space heater, and camp stove, with a tiny stall used for showering. This is the shed where Martinez was living, and it is very important that you note his living conditions at that time. Police were able to piece little details about Martinez's past, such as how he was born deaf in 1971 and was the fourth born of nine siblings. He lived through El Salvador's 12-year civil war. He attended school briefly, but then was forced to quit and sell vegetables with his mother in the marketplace as she had lost her husband to a grenade blast. He left behind a wife and two kids when he decided to head for the States. When asked how Oswaldo made the trek from El Salvador to the U.S., Mario simply said, We don't know. Police came to find out that even his own family were barely able to communicate with him. Meanwhile, Oswaldo explained his journey to Barbara Haskins, a state psychiatrist, through crude drawings. He completed his 5,000-mile trip through train ride, boats, and an airplane. He somehow even indicated that he swum while coming to the U.S. He appeared to explain that he came here to build houses. It was deduced that he learned how to do these tasks by imitating the behavior of his co-workers. Martinez started showing up to YB's a few months before the murder. A 5'4 laborer weighing 130 pounds, he frequented the bar so often, the patrons knew of him and his particulars. A second article by the Washington Post stated, Women in the bar said he sometimes propositioned them by waving to get their attention, pointing to himself, then pursing his lips and making kissing sounds. They laughed him off. Aside his staring, he apparently never acted out of line in the bar. Carol Howard, a waitress at YB's, explained how he would signal for food and drink. When he wanted a beer, he'd show her his hands, one above the other, close together for a draft, farther apart for a bottle. If he flashed six fingers, she'd bring him half a dozen fried dumplings. 
If he wanted a burger, he'd cup his hands as if he were about to bite into one. So yes, Martinez is deaf and nonverbal, cannot read or write, and while he has been termed linguistically incompetent, just how incompetent is he really? A very, very interesting read titled Unspeakable Justice, The Oswaldo Martinez Case and the Failure of the Legal System to Adequately Provide for Incompetent Defendants by Jamie Mickelson stated, The prosecution noted that while being interrogated, Martinez recognized a picture of Binger and subsequently imitated sexual acts using anatomical dolls. Further, he wrote down $60 in relation to the dolls, thus implying he had paid Binger for sex. So it would seem that he may understand more than what appears. So far, we're able to deduce that Martinez had faced hardships since birth. He was used to laboring in the fields as a child and poor living conditions. But now, after all these years, Martinez has been living very well compared to the shed his brother set him up in. He's not doing hard labor anymore. Sure, he doesn't get money, but he has access to food, a bed, a clean, safer place to sleep for free. Martinez has gone to a competency evaluation every six months, and each time the conclusion has been no improvement. The goal of his treatment is to teach him how to communicate and restore Martinez's competency level to a level where he can go to trial for his crimes. His treatment is to teach him how to communicate and is in no way medical. If he understands or surmises that learning how to communicate will cause his living situation to get worse, why would he want to do that? In 2006, at another competency hearing, his attorney stated that he had learned about 150 signs, but the clinical psychologist working with Martinez testified that it was their belief that he may never learn enough to be found competent. So does he stay in this facility until he dies? What is the end goal if he is never found competent for trial? Surely this is not the first time something like this has happened though, right? That's right. It's not. To keep it brief, Donna Lang, who was deaf and nonverbal, was linked to the brutal murder of a prostitute through circumstantial evidence. His story is just like Martinez's, incompetent to stand trial and was sent to a treatment center. Unlike Martinez, though, after several years, the prosecution ended up dismissing the charges after a witness died. Lang was released and then subsequently arrested months later for the brutal murder of another prostitute. Eventually, Lang was civilly committed and held in a mental health facility until his death in 2008. The more you look, though, the more you find deaf and nonverbal defendants stuck in a legal system that just doesn't know what to do with them. In the landmark decision, Jackson v. Indiana, the Supreme Court ruled that Indiana had violated Theon Jackson's right to due process by involuntarily committing him for an indefinite period of time solely on the basis of his permanent incompetency to stand trial on the charges filed against him. Jackson, who was nonverbal and deaf and additionally could not read, write, or in general communicate with others, had been charged with two counts of petty theft and ultimately committed to a psychiatric facility when it was determined his intelligence was too low to stand for trial. His attorney argued that doing so was more or less incarcerating Jackson for life without him actually being convicted of a crime. The Supreme Court ended up reversing the lower court's decision of indefinitely committing Jackson. But that was petty theft, not rape and murder. Martinez's lawyer has argued to the state Supreme Court that the charges against Martinez should be dismissed and the six months reviews should be stopped. He stated that the law mandates that defendants must be receiving medical treatment, not educational treatment, in order to be held without trial and therefore Martinez should be released. The Virginia Attorney General's office, however, obviously disagrees. 
They counter that the law does not require the treatment to be strictly medical, and further that the state Supreme Court does not have jurisdiction in this case, as it's a criminal matter, not civil. And so, 16 years later, Martinez continues to receive treatment with no improvement or trial in sight. In all the articles I read, I didn't see any mention of Brittany's mother speaking out over her murder. Her father, James Binger, was described as growing angry and impatient. He believes that Martinez is competent enough to stand trial, and in 2014 was quoted as saying, I hope you die in jail. Brutally. That's right. That's how I feel. But what I want done, I can't get done. Now, I don't mean to be insensitive in this part, and I apologize if I come off this way. However, all I've read about Brittany is that she was estranged from her parents. In fact, she was bunking with different friends because neither parent wanted to take her in. I'm not denying her father's anger or pain. I just wonder that if the family were more involved, then could this case be pushed along? If there was more pressure from family, could some kind of solution be forced? But what solution? The legal system, as I said, just does not know what to do with them. They're alleged to have committed some kind of wrongdoing, but everyone is stuck on how to proceed. Even if the evidence is clear-cut, it's innocent until proven guilty. But how can you prove your innocence without being able to communicate? And so it's a never-ending circle of confusion for everyone involved. It's really tragic that when you start researching Britney's case, you are overwhelmed with information on Oswaldo Martinez, but no resolution or closure for Britney. She was raped and murdered, and she's no closer to justice. What do you think should be done? Is the state just going to wait until he dies? Are the courts going to keep bouncing this case around to make it seem like something is being done? Even if he's deported, what is to stop him from coming back? Deportation is not justice for Brittany. What if he's released and, like Donald Lang, he's accused of a second rape or murder? What if he somehow understands that if he shows improvement, that that is only going to cause his current quality of life to decrease? It's a catch-22, because in the simplest of explanations, you can't release him because he's accused of rape and murder and can very well be capable of doing this again, but you can't jail him because he can't comprehend the consequences to his actions. And this is why the murder of Brittany Binger remains unsolved.